The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together. We give you thanks for all of the Wednesdays that we've been able to spend together this term, for all of the fun that we have had learning more about the things of your kingdom and the way that Lewis's writing and your word have challenged us to go deeper in following you. Lord, we pray your blessing on our time this evening and pray that you would strengthen us that we might serve you with our whole heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, as you were coming in, as usual, there was music playing, and some people had a little bit of an advance uh, warning about that. But who who knows what that music was? Beethoven's Ninth. And what section? Ode to Joy, which is about what? Joy, yeah, yeah, sometimes the obvious answer is right, yes, very good, so it is about joy, and I would strongly encourage you, if you have never heard that performed live, please do that, please do that, it will bless you, and one of the great things about that piece is that it is very much like, you might remember a couple of weeks ago when we went out, we we're looking at the trees and we we're talking about how God reveals himself through the design of nature. That That's one of the pointers to God. And the very end of Ode to Joy talks about how when you look at the stars, your heart is turned and you realize that there is a creator and that the spark of joy is the gift of God. So it's kind of cool in that respect. But even though we could listen to it because it was a very nice piece of music, probably the most famous symphony in the world, that's not why we're listening to it here. Uh, as you probably caught on, every piece of music we start class with has been connected in some way with Lewis. Does anybody have any idea what the connection of this one is? His wife's name. Well, that's true, but that's not it. He played it at his wedding. Oh, it's such a great idea, but no. <laughs> that would have been really amazing. Get everybody to raise their hand. How many of you had it played? How many had it in their way? I'm surprised. I'm in Oklahoma, they didn't know that. <laughs> well, the, the, reason, the reason that it's important for Lewis is that there is a letter that he wrote in 1935 uh, to a friend. Remember, this is shortly after his conversion to Christianity, and he had gone from Oxford to London um, to hear uh, a symphony and chorus perform Beethoven's Ninth. And he said that he thought that it was the most beautiful thing that he had ever heard. So given that he was, during this time period, really focused on this idea of truth, goodness and beauty, that is quite a statement. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up class and we're going to wrap up talking about heaven. And before we get to that, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about what we talked about last week, which is suffering. And one of the very interesting things about Lewis, which is completely consonant with what you see in the revelation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that the ideas of suffering and heaven are intimately connected with each other. And so there is this idea that suffering is 
for a purpose, that it's not just random suffering and that there is such a thing as redemption that may occur during this life in some level but will occur in all of its fullness when we are with Christ in heaven. So just backtracking a little bit about this, one of the things Lewis says about suffering is that your worldview is incredibly important in figuring out how you cope with suffering. If you have an atheistic worldview, it is very difficult to cope with suffering because there's no reason, there's no purpose, and there's no redemption. So it's a a pretty grim outlook. And Lewis, as we talked about, had a lot of very deep personal suffering in his own life. He lost his mother when he was nine years old, shipped off to boarding school at age nine in another country, and not even a good boarding school with a crazy headmaster. Um, Then when he finally, at Oxford, made some friends, they were all called up into World War I. Lewis went to the trenches on either his 18th or 19th birthday. He watched his friends blown up, literally, in front of him. His best friend died. Many of the men under Lewis's command died. Lewis himself was wounded in the war and had a long convalescence and had shrapnel in his leg for the rest of his life. So he had a lot of suffering with that. Um, He also had a lot of suffering with uh, Mrs. Moore, who was his friend's mother who he took in. And Mrs. Moore, um, there were probably some really good things about Mrs. Moore. But many commentators have used the word fishwife to describe her, um, that she was strident, that she was bullying. Um, She insisted that Lewis do all the housework. Um, It was really just a remarkable thing. And he bore all of that and wrote all of this amazing stuff while he was contending with that at home. Shortly after she died, Lewis met Joy Davidman. We talked about her story a little bit last week. Um, Originally, they had just had uh, marriage on paper to prevent her from being deported from England. Um, Lewis fell in love with her. She was dying. She was in the cancer ward. The x-rays had showed that her left leg was basically gone. The bone was gone. Um, They called a priest to come do a wedding ceremony at the hospital bed. Um, This priest had a gift of healing. They prayed over joy, and miraculously, her leg bone regenerated. When they did the next x-rays, it was back, and it was strong. So they had three years together before the cancer came back in a ravaging way, and she died. And Lewis was utterly despondent after that. And in his book, A Grief Observed, he talks a lot about why did you take me, I was pretty happy as I was, have me fall in love with this woman at the end of my life and then snatch her away from me. And so he rails, it's like reading the Psalms when David is railing against God. But he ultimately comes around to understanding that love and grief and sorrow and suffering, all these things are intimately woven together in God's pattern and that in heaven, which is our true home, these things are redeemed. So that's an important thing to keep in the back of your mind. Works dealing with suffering. Lewis wrote a lot on this topic, but it's not always where you would expect it would be. So the problem of pain It's his first book about suffering. Um, He was invited to write this book uh, during World War II. 
uh, to explain intellectually how, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, then why is there suffering in the world? It's a very sort of philosophically-oriented book, um, not an experientially-oriented book, but it is extremely well done. He's working on the problem of theodicy, which if you studied philosophy or theology is the idea of if God is good, then how can there be suffering? So a lot in the problem of pain from an intellectual level. The last battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia is full of teaching about suffering uh, that is done through the lens of this beautiful story of Narnia and the last battle in Aslan's redeeming creation. And it is really and truly beautiful. There's a great preacher in Oxford uh, who is the uh, priest at St. Ebbs, which is a church of probably some 1,000 people. And don't believe it when people tell you Christianity's dead in England. Um, there are places where it's dead, but when I, whenever I've been at St. Ebbs, there have been eight to 900 people there on Sunday morning, and the average age is probably 25, and lots of them are the smartest people in England because they're students or grad students at Oxford, so that gives you hope. But the, uh, the minister there, uh, I happened to be there when he was doing a sermon on C.S. Lewis, which was really great since it was the one Sunday I was there. Um, and he talked about how out of all of the theology books he'd read and all of the seminary courses he had taken, that he thought the best explanation of suffering and the best description of what heaven is really like experientially that coincides with what the scriptures teach was Lewis's work in The Last Battle. So if you haven't read that book, Please read it. You might not think that that would be a book where you would learn about suffering, but it is. So I commend that to you. Um, the great, sorry, Grief Observed uh, is also really great. It's a very honest book where Lewis is screaming at God in his pain and lack of understanding. And then he ultimately comes around. In some ways, it's like the book of Job, where he understands that God is greater than his suffering, and that the kingdom of God is more important and more transcendent than anything he could experience on this earth. Uh, it is a really great book. Um, the Great Divorce, Lewis's supposal, as he called it, about heaven and hell, where the people in hell are offered a bus trip up to heaven to see if they like it, and um, they don't, and they want to get back as soon as they can because hell's more comfortable for them than heaven. Uh, it's a very interesting book, but there's a lot in there about pain and suffering and the effect it has on people. So that one is important. And then also The Weight of Glory. Uh, the Weight of Glory is pretty short. It is arguably word for word Lewis's best writing. It's pretty short. But it is just dynamite in terms of what it contains. So I commend that one to you as well. So one of the things Lewis talks about in helping us to frame suffering is this idea that we don't understand the word goodness properly. When we say if God was good, he wouldn't allow this. And what Lewis says, goodness from God's perspective means loving us so thoroughly that he wants to perfect us. It's not a sloppy sentimentality 
that just says, oh, you screwed up again, bless your heart. You know, it's not, it's not like that. It is, I know what I made you to be, and I want to do everything that I can to help you become that. And some of that is going to require suffering. It's just like the sermons we've been hearing about pruning and abiding and the vine and all of that. It's all caught up in that same idea. So this whole idea that Lewis talks about is that we are saved from something, but we are saved for something, that God can use the experiences of suffering we have for his kingdom and its purposes, which, of course, is completely what Paul tells us in Romans 8 as well. So, and then incarnation, huge theme for Lewis. Uh, We talked about his... uh, enthusiasm for Athanasius's treatise on the incarnation that he wrote the introduction for that we have the essay that's called On Reading the Old Books um, was actually written as an introduction to this treatise on the incarnation. For Lewis, the incarnation, Jesus's coming to earth is the central miracle of everything that God has done and the results that continue to unfold from that are the central miracle of all time. And that incarnation is particularly important with suffering because Jesus models for us what suffering looks like, suffering far greater than anything that any of us will ever experience. But God chose for him to experience that, and that is one of the great gifts of following him. So heaven, one of the things Lewis points out is that if you have a Christian understanding of heaven, then it helps complete your understanding of suffering. Because things that are not redeemed in this world will be redeemed in heaven. And that in heaven, as we heard that beautiful piece by Bainton that draws its text from Revelation last week, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful image at the end of the Bible. And you also find it back in, I think it's Isaiah 25, Um, where it's prophesied that God will do that. And it's a reminder that pain and suffering will be no more. Uh, In the last battle, uh, the children are trying to get tired, and they're trying to worry, and they find they can't do any of those things in Aslan's country because all of that has been banished. So heaven, really important. Um, The idea, though, is that we have to realize that there's mystery and suffering. Most of us uh, like to try to figure things out, and sometimes we think that pain and suffering are like a puzzle, that if we can just get the right pieces, we can get the right way of thinking about it, the right scripture verse, the right this, the right that, then it will all fall into place and it will make sense to us. And Austin Ferrer, who's Lewis's good friend, Uh, who's warden of Keeble College in Oxford, talks a lot in one of his books about suffering, about the difference between a puzzle and a mystery. And he says that suffering is a mystery. We cannot understand it. Some of you will remember the Flat Stanley analogy, that um, Flat Stanley, the little paper doll that exists as a paper doll, he can't, even though he's standing at the Eiffel Tower in the picture with you, His experience of what it's like to go up the Eiffel Tower is not the same as yours. And it's kind of the same way that we are with respect to God. That There are all of these dimensions and things that God is weaving 
that we don't understand and we can't see. So understanding that mystery aspect is important. And in the meantime, this concept of Ebenezer's is huge. Ebenezer's being monuments that remind us of God's faithfulness. It comes from Joshua, when Joshua crossed the river miraculously at flood stage after 40 years in the desert to go into the promised land. God tells them to take the Ark of the Covenant, their most precious possession, and walk into the floodwaters, which is crazy. But they do it. God does a miracle, stops the water, and then Joshua has them collect these huge, flat river stones from the bottom of the river and pile them up to remind them of God's faithfulness, that God brought them to this place. And so this idea of Ebenezer is that you find in that hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, um, and an Ebenezer Scrooge about remembering all of those ideas. The idea of remembering God's faithfulness in the past for us as Christians is really, really important when we walk through times of suffering. So the other thing that is part of Lewis's understanding of heaven and of suffering is this whole idea of selfishness versus unselfishness. Most of us, well, I shouldn't put it on you, I will say for me, one of the things that very often happens is if I am suffering, I think, okay, I need to fix this. I need to fix my circumstances so I am not suffering anymore. And all of my energy is going into fixing my circumstances. How successful are we usually at fixing our circumstances? <laughs> Not very. And so then we get frustrated, and then we get angry, and then we get mad at God. So that doesn't usually work out very well. But what we are told in Scripture is that Jesus didn't focus on trying to change the circumstances of his suffering he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And you see Jesus being ultimately completely self-sacrificial and using his suffering as a means of redemption. And it's like that verse in Hebrews where it says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the shame, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. So that whole idea that there's that joy that's set in front of you, the suffering is just something that you walk through that God can use. And if you are focusing on trying to meet the needs of others instead of fixing your own circumstances, God may bless you in the midst of that suffering. Uh, we talked a little bit about Charles Williams and burden bearing. Uh, we have been put in fellowship to bear one another's burdens. And scripture tells us over and over and over again about that. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's pretty strong. And the idea of that is that we have to be vulnerable enough to share what our burdens are. So part of suffering is a means of building deeper fellowship. And then lastly, the image of paradise. Uh, paradise is a word that Lewis uses a fair amount. It's a word that is in the Bible a lot, starting in Genesis. Uh, the word for the Garden of Eden is paradise. Um, the word for heaven in the New Testament is often the Greek word for paradise. It actually comes from an old Persian word, paradise, which means a walled garden. And there is a terrific handout um, that I don't have time to really go over, but I really commend it to you, talking about this idea of the walled garden 
as it shows up in the Chronicles of Narnia and how it relates to the scriptural imagery of heaven. It is, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the things you also will notice if you read Genesis and then you read Revelation is the idea that the story of the Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a garden. The tree of life on, with the river um, in Revelation 22 is one of the most beautiful passages with the leaves for the healing of the nations. It's just beautiful. But it's part of the reason Lewis and Tolkien are obsessed with gardens and trees because it is the framework of the Bible. So um, keep that in the back of your mind. Brian, yes. I, you know, I think of it as, I know I'm not Lewis or Tolkien, but it's, I, I've always thought that the scriptures started in a garden but ended in a city, but the city had the river. Yes. So how do you... The city and the garden are the same. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're a sanctuary. Yes, yes. So the New Jerusalem comes down, but part of the way the New Jerusalem is described as is as a garden. Okay. So it is. You can say maybe it's a component of it, but they're they're essentially used interchangeably. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, hope, hope. You might know this already is one of the great virtues: faith, hope, and love. You might have heard that somewhere before, uh, maybe in Corinthians. So uh, hope is something that is really important, and particularly in the culture in which we live today where despair is rampant, 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 rampant. Hope is one of the things that Christians have that the world is desperate for. And we a lot of times forget that, and we even forget that we have hope, that we keep our head down on our phone and we're so worried about everything that's going on all the time that we have lost our hope. And Lewis, if he were alive today, I think would be teaching a lot on this topic and how important it is to recover the Christian virtue of hope. And one of the places that you see the Christian virtue of hope lived out um, most poignantly is in the lyrics of a lot of old African-American spirituals. And you see this hope of heaven that is through all of those old spirituals, understanding that this life is not all there is and that there is glory on the other side. So I'm going to read you this little quotation from a letter that Lewis wrote a couple of months before his death. And he says, We are like a seed waiting in the good earth, waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but cock crow is coming. And it's the idea that we've talked about before that we are only at the beginning. We're in kind of the preamble of what God has made us for, that we are designed for that country, for another country, and that our ultimate fulfillment and joy and reunion with God where we have that separation of sin, even as Christians we have that separation of sin, that will be gone in heaven. And because because of that, we have this hope that should inform the way that we live our lives. But the problem is we forget, which is why we need Ebenezer's. And then one of the interesting things that Lewis says in Surprised by Joy 
is it is more important that heaven should exist than that any of us should reach it. Now, that may sound like a very surprising thing to say, and I think for all of us on a personal level, we may think, well, that's fine and good, but I certainly hope that I reach it. Uh, But what Lewis is saying there is if there was no heaven, if God didn't exist and heaven didn't exist, then the whole framework of Christianity shatters. And so the fact that it exists means that God is real. It's one of the pointers to the reality of God. And without that, uh, we would be uh, as men with no hope. In the same way that Paul talks about the resurrection, that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all people to be most pitied. But the good news is Christ is raised from the dead, and so therefore we have this hope. And part of the reason Lewis thinks this is important, remember we've talked a lot about Plato in here, and the idea that Plato conceives through natural revelation that there must be a God, and that there there are things about God that you can discern. And one of the things that Lewis talked about is this um, argument from desire, that if we are hungry, there is food. If we are thirsty, there is water. So if we have this desire for another country and believe that our souls are eternal, then there must be something planted in our hearts that tells us that. One of the most interesting quotations that you will never learn in school from Sigmund Freud, of all people, is that as he was approaching death, he said, I find it very odd that my soul does not seem to believe that it is destined for death. It seems to think that it is immortal. It's very interesting. So uh, Lewis talks about in the New Testament understanding of heaven that salvation brings it to a whole different level than what you see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's hope. There's hope and hope and prophecy and prophecy. But in the New Testament, the prophecy is fulfilled. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, sin is dealt with and the gateway of heaven is opened. And so it is as if we had the diagnosis in the Old Testament and then the cure comes in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And as Lewis looks at these three aspects of heaven that he discerns, he talks about three things. One is that we experience in heaven ultimate reality, utter reality. Um, If you remember Plato's cave, the people that are bound looking in the darkness and all they see is shadows, and then the one person gets out into the sunlight and is just blown away by the beauty and everything else that he perceives. And then he goes back and tries to tell the other people, and they think he is crazy. Exactly. But what Lewis is saying is that heaven is getting out of the cave and being in the sunlight and seeing, finally, seeing the way that God made you to see, um, free from the shackles of sin, free from all the things that would take you away from being who he made you to be. The second thing is that we are in the presence of God. Scripture is very clear about this, that when we are in heaven, we are in the presence of Christ. And that's an amazing thing. If you think about going all the way back 
to Genesis and Moses and the veil and all of that, to be able to be in the presence of God is an absolutely crazy, remarkable, unbelievable thing. But that is part and parcel of what it means to be in heaven. And if you were in the service, we were just singing about that. And I want to be, I want to walk as a child of the light. Um, it's an amazing gift. And then the last part, living after the resurrection in our new bodies. One of the things as Martha was saying is that Revelation makes very clear that there is a physicality to heaven. We have been done a great disservice by Hallmark and even by movies like It's a Wonderful Life, where we think angels are all about bells and playing clouds on harps, and playing harps on clouds, and um, getting your wings. And that is not true. I'm sorry to tell you, if you thought you were going to become an angel when you die, no. Um, angels are a separate created order. And also, all the angels in Scripture are men. Sorry, ladies. And they are actually warriors. There is a reason when they appear that they always say, be not afraid. afraid, because they're scary. So you don't want to turn into an angel. But God has something better for you. He is going to have you be the ultimately perfected you. And you are going to be in that, remember in Mythopoeia where Tolkien talks about that single great white light that is God and then it hits the prism and it's refracted into all of these different dots, countless dots, each one different, a slightly different shade, that that's kind of the way we are. We all bear the image of God, but when we are in heaven, that image will no longer be marred or distorted. It will be shining like the sun. And that other description of heaven that is a beautiful one that's at the end of the last battle uh, which you probably heard this because not only do I quote this one a lot but Jeff really likes this one so um, it shows up in sermons but the very end of the, the last battle says this life is only the cover and title page of that great story in which every chapter is better than the one before and it's again that idea that we are only on the front end of things that this life is not all that there is that we are preparing during this life for an eternity that will be filled with wonder and joy. Not an eternity of being stuck on a pink cloud playing a harp. <laughs> uh, one that is filled with joy and physicality. The imagery is so interesting in Revelation. It talks about a rich feast with all of these foods, just like Robert's Restaurant. Food, <laughs> glorious food. There's food. Um, there's music. Three, there's, three up there. That's right. There's singing. Um, there's beauty. There are trees. There's a river. Um, it, it will be an amazing, amazing thing. And part of what we need to do as Christians is to recover our hope for that and quit thinking that this world is all there is and heaven is just fire insurance, which is the way that a lot of people think about it. But that is not uh, what the scriptures teach. So as we think about this, one of the things you're going to notice, I've got a couple of long quotations tonight. So just hang in there, hang in there with them. Uh, but this is from Mere Christianity. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, 
But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. In other words, you're not supposed to just run off and put yourself in a bunker and just wait to die. That is not it. Remember, Jesus in John 17 in the high priestly prayer says, Father, I pray that you would sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. So the idea is that we're in the world, but not of the world. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Now, we could spend the rest of our time just on that quotation, but I commend you to chew on that a little bit, because if you will just even remember in the book of Acts, shortly after the resurrection, um, when Peter and John heal the man on the steps of the temple, and they are dragged in in front of the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas in the same courtyard where Jesus was condemned to death with the same guys the same courtyard where Peter before wouldn't even admit he knew Jesus and swore up and down and denied him three times and then ran away. They go into that same courtyard and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin says, do not talk about Jesus anymore. Get it? That's a free translation. Uh, (laughs) And Peter says, I understand what you're saying, but we cannot help but talk about Jesus Christ, whom you put to death, but who God raised from the dead. And you can judge whether it's right and wrong, but we have no choice but to keep proclaiming this name. And you see what happened with Peter and the disciples in terms of turning the world upside down. And it's because they really so understood that their home was in heaven and that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and fully capable of doing anything miraculous that they realized that living their lives in that view made all the difference. And as a result of that, people were drawn to them like magnets. And people that have that kind of faith are the ones that end up changing the world. And ironically, the people that are trying to do um, (coughs) progress Uh, in quotation marks, um, from an atheistic perspective, perfecting the human race, it doesn't ever get anywhere. You might make a few steps forward, and then the next generation, you fall five steps back. So Lewis is saying here that it is very important that we keep this hope and this future focus toward heaven. Now, this part is from the last battle. And this is one of these descriptive passages about heaven that Lewis writes that uh, I commend to you. So I'm going to read this to you, but I hope you will, if you don't have the last battle, buy it and read this last chapter out loud to yourself or maybe to a friend. So this part says, it is as hard to explain 
how the sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea, or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley, all over again in the looking glass. And the sea and the mirror, or the valley and the mirror, were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, and a story you have never heard, but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Brihihi, come further up, come further in. And this is just one of the descriptions of what Aslan's country is like. And when you read it, particularly in context, there's just joy bursting out of these words. And the idea of being freed from shackles that you didn't even know that you had and being set free to experience joy at a level that you had never even been able to imagine before. And Lewis, I think, does a brilliant job of describing that. And this further up, further in uh, is, becomes the cry of the children and the dogs and the others who enter into Aslan's country because every time they go around a bend or up a hill, they discover some just beautiful, amazing, beyond description kind of thing. And one of the things that they get to is a walled garden, interestingly enough. And you see this in The Magician's Nephew as well. And so Lewis is playing with all of this imagery that comes to us out of the Bible and trying to help us understand that heaven is something that is so wonderful and joyful and incredible that this hope in our heart should be vibrant, not just a, uh, well, rather go to heaven than go to hell. It's just the way that we think about heaven is so impoverished And part of what Lewis is trying to do is to get us to recover that sense of wonder that we have lost. Now, one of the things, if you are familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, you will recognize that a lot of what Lewis is drawing on is in this Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, if you have not spent a lot of time in that particular book, Romans 8 is one of the great chapters of the New Testament is one that is well worth sinking your teeth into. And the part that you're used to hearing from Romans 8 is 
God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which is Romans 8.28. But that verse is not nearly as wonderful as it should be until you read the part that comes before it. So I'm going to ask you to read this out loud with me, okay? So here we go. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now again, we can spend hours talking about this. But you will notice that Lewis has plagiarized everything that I just said out of this passage because hope, suffering, and heaven are all intimately intertwined here. And that's because that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. And this whole idea that our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us and the idea that the creation is waiting for us to be revealed in glory. It's just an amazing concept that's hard to get your head around. But if you want to try to get your head around it, read The Weight of Glory, uh, because Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, really unpacks what this idea is all about. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I would encourage you, if, if you remember way back early on in the class when we were talking about Zainzut, and we're talking about this idea of desire, that stab of joy, that's sort of like nostalgia when you have that memory of some almost perfect time when you were a child or something had just gone really right and it was beautiful and amazing and you, you wish you could experience it again, but it's just not possible. And so there's this part of you that is celebratory that it happened, but there's another part of you that is painfully sad that you can't go back and experience that again. And that you, you also have that experience sometimes in worship. If you're in an amazing worship service, and for many people, if you're wired like me, music may be what does that to you. And suddenly, something happens that's just so beautiful that you just burst into tears. And they are tears of joy. They're not tears of sadness or, any, or pain or anything like that. But you're being overwhelmed by the beauty of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Lewis is talking about here with the first fruits. That's the first fruits of the Spirit. That's that taste that we get of the fruit of that heavenly country 
when we have those experiences in heaven will be like that all the time. So it's, it's an amazing thing to consider. So given that we were talking about the weight of glory, uh, here is one of the excerpts from the weight of glory. I'm going to ask you again uh, to read this with me. Uh, this, If you don't have the weight of glory, you don't really even need to buy it. It would help C.S. Lewis's estate if you were to buy it. Uh, but there are public domain copies um, that are on the internet that are easy to find if you just enter weight of glory PDF. Um, it's nine pages long, uh, but it's very deep. I would urge you, if you've never read it, to get it and read it out loud. And you're probably tired of my saying that, but I think one of the, one of the problems sometimes people have with Lewis is that it's so pithy it's like trying to chew on the finest, gooeyest caramel and swallow it in five seconds. And that just doesn't work. And you can't savor it properly if you're doing that. And so if you read it out loud, it will slow you down. And it will help you to absorb what he's saying. So we're going to read. This is sort of in the middle of the weight of glory. So here we go. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves, that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry so false as history may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So, I would commend that to you. That passage makes me cry every time I read it. But it is, it is a beautiful description of what God has in store for us. And that we are going to enter in through that door that we come up to the edge of sometimes, but we can never quite get through that we can never quite see uh, in this life. But when we get to heaven, we will be able to enter in 
through that door. And again, when you read The Last Battle, one of the very interesting things is that when they come into Aslan's country, it's beautiful. They're in this emerald green meadow, and there are mountains off in the distance, and a river, and flowers, and all of this. But right in the middle of this meadow, there's a door frame with a door in it. Well, that's very odd. You don't just find isolated doors in door frames in the middle of meadows. But one of the things that is so interesting about that door metaphor is that Lewis, once again, has stolen it right out of the gospel. Does anybody know where that might be from? John? Yes, John. Yeah, John 10, where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. And so that door that Lewis has there is in some way metaphorically Jesus himself. He is the door into Aslan's country. He is the door into that perfect union with Aslan, who of course represents God, Jesus, all of that. And when they come through this door, they are just in awe of what they experience. And they are full of um, a newfound wonder at beauty, truth, and goodness that are all around them. And one of the other beautiful things is that all of the woundedness, brokenness, old age, disease, all of those things are all wiped away. They are young. They are strong. They are in their prime. There are no aches and pains or medicine. And uh, they, they are in this beautiful um, flower of what it means to be who God made them to be. So on that note, uh, we will stop. Uh, one thing that I would encourage you to do is to find the weight of glory, to find the last battle, and spend a little bit of time in those because it will fire your heart with desire for that heavenly country. And the more that all of us desire that, um, the better we will be in living out our faith in this world. So um, a couple of things before we wrap up. This afternoon, I sent everybody an email um, with two things in it that I would love for you to take a few minutes and help me with. The first one is about some ideas about what we might do this summer. Um, I am perfectly fine. It will not hurt my feelings if y'all all say, I have had enough to hear with C.S. Lewis. I don't want to hear C.S. Lewis or anything about him um, all summer long. And that is perfectly fine. On the other hand, if you would like to hear some more, um, I think that probably the most reasonable thing is to try to do a monthly get-together. A lot of people are going to be scattering, but um, we could do that either in the evening at church in here. Um, we could do it over lunch. We could maybe go to a restaurant. I mean, there are a lot of different things. Um, there also are different possibilities about what we could do with that time. We could keep a format similar to this. Um, we could come and all have read something. Um, if you have an entire month, maybe it would be easier to come. I haven't expected you to come prepared having read anything for this. And y'all have done great. Um, but if we, were, if, we were, if we were doing something like that, it would be important 
um, to come. And usually if I do something like that, what I would ask each person to do is to underline one passage or paragraph that was particularly meaningful to them and then be prepared to share that and why. So that, that's a possibility. Um, we could also look at some themes um, rather than a particular book. With, there are some themes that you may think we've talked about everything that Lewis ever read about, uh, but there are plenty more. So uh, we could spend some time really developing Lewis's theology of joy, uh, which we haven't really done. Um, there, there are a number in the email. You can look at that and see what you think. But just let me know your thoughts, and I'll see if there's any kind of consensus in there. And then the second part is I've asked you just some questions about this course from January through May, kind of what you liked, what you've learned, if you felt it was helpful, if you felt like that it helped you grow in your faith. We're getting ready to have planning day um, for next fall and spring. And so one of the questions will be, do we offer something like this again? And so having some some feedback from y'all would be very, very helpful when is in that. Day? So we have a we, we have a cutoff to know we have to do Yes, together. next Thursday, not tomorrow, but um, Thursday okay. week. So yeah, if you can get me your thoughts about that um, by then, that would be great. The other thing I would encourage you to do, um, most of y'all have been really good about picking up these handouts every week. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have actually read all of the handouts. <laughs> Uh, but now that you have them, if you haven't read them, that's a great way to kind of go back and reinforce. Those of you who are teachers know about the, the learning loop. And that means that you hear it, and then sort of the next time you maybe hear it again and write it down, then you're tested on it. We're not doing that. Um, but then if you hear it again with the idea of some application a while after you heard it the first time, it sticks with you better. So one of the things that um, some of you know is that on the website for the church, Florence has done a wonderful job of having all of the classes, the uh, audio, but also the PowerPoints and most of the handouts. So if you want to, if there was a class that you felt like, I didn't really completely get that, or I fell asleep because Brian was boring me out of my socks, um, whatever it might be, you can go back and maybe it might put you to sleep listening to the recording, but you can, you can go back um, to that resource on the website and use that to reinforce. So I would encourage you to do that. So all that being said, let me close us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for all the time that we've been able to spend together since back in January when it was actually cold, um, and we began this pilgrimage through Lewis's works. Lord, we thank you for all of the ways that Lewis helps to express the truth of who you are and what it means to follow Jesus with our whole heart. Lord, we pray that you would help this not to just be head knowledge for us, but that you would take the things that we have heard and seen and thought about and that you would help us to apply them in our lives in such a way that we would be moved toward holiness. Lord, we pray for your blessing. I ask that you would continue to put a passion for growing and loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength in each one of us, that one day when we see you face to face, that we might rejoice with unending joy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. Thank you.